Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Matsko, author of the book, The Radio Right, How a Band of Broadcasters Took on the Federal Government and Built the Modern Conservative Movement. Paul, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. So I am a historian, a professional historian. I got my degree from Penn State back in 2016. Uh, Right now, I am an assistant editor for tech and innovation at the Cato Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C., where I host the podcast called Building Tomorrow about tech and innovation and future topics. Um, But I do still get a chance to write about history every now and again, and uh, it's been exciting to see this book coming out with Oxford. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. I was wondering what led you to write about it, because it, it's a very interesting topic. And, and you delve a bit into the historiography, but you also, just, as you explain it, this is something of a uh, unexplored territory. What was it that drew you to the subject in the first place? Yeah, so it started in graduate school. I was at Temple at the time working on the master's, and um, I, I needed a, a topic for a grad seminar about uh, the 1960s, mid 20th century history. I wanted to do something on conservatism in the new right. I had, like many other people, read an article by a historian named uh, uh, Alan Brinkley, where he said that there's too little history work being done on the history of the new right. Um, we need more. We need as, as much history of the new right as we do of the new left, which there's been much more uh, about to that point when he was writing the article. And so I went looking for a subject uh, that I could do as a graduate student. And nearby, I had heard that the Princeton Theological Seminary had acquired the papers of a right-wing broadcaster named Carl McIntyre. His papers were there at Princeton. And uh, bonus, uh, his papers were there because the city of uh, Collingswood had seized one of his buildings for for tax non-payment. He had defaulted on his taxes. And so his archives, unlike most people's archives, were given to the university or to the seminary unedited. I mean, so most people, when they donate their papers to an archive, you know, they're, they're guardians of their uh, of their flame, if you will, of their legacy, go through the archives and pull out all the embarrassing stuff, which historians know as the good stuff. Uh, but because, right, so it's the family. They're concerned that grandpappy was racist and that, you know, it'll be embarrassing if the correspondence comes out. So they, they kind of filter through and take out a lot of interesting things. But since his papers were seized for defaulting on taxes, it's all there, right? So it's this very large archive from the most influential right-wing broadcaster of the 1960s um, in basically unedited form. And so I I knew that was there. Uh, It had just been open to the public not many years before, so I dove in. And originally, the story I thought I was going to tell was going to be a story of religious history. Uh, At the time, I was thinking of myself as a religious historian, studying the history of evangelicalism and its interaction with conservative politics. But very quickly, I realized this story is much bigger than that. 
there is religious history in the book, but as I put it at one point, it is a political history of religious broadcasting. And it's primarily the story uh, twofold. One part that we'll talk about is how influential these conservative broadcasters were in the rise of the new right, but then also how that freaked out their opponents um, on the left and how the Kennedy administration, uh, President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy organized a concerted campaign to shut them down, uh, which led to one of the most um, successful episodes of government censorship of the last half century. So the story started had humble origins, you know, a desperate graduate student looking for a topic and has since evolved into this. It's a fascinating story because it's one where on the one hand, in one sense, it's a very familiar story. I mean, today Americans are very familiar with, uh, you know, right wing radio and its scope and its influence, and yet at the same time, it's in a very different environment. It, it's one that that re- requires, I think, uh, uh, to start with an understanding as to what radio was like in the nineteen fifties and what was going on with Carl McIntyre and some of the other individuals that you talk about. That was really different than what had come before. I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit, what were some of the changes that were taking place in the radio industry in the 1950s that made possible the rise of these nationally prominent figures like Carl McIntyre, like Billy James uh, Hargis, who uh, became such uh, nationally prominent figures on on the air? Yeah, that's a great question. The So it, it, those who are familiar with the the early days of radio – um, they might have heard of folks like Father Charles Coughlin in the 1930s, 1940, early 1940s. Um, you have a series of broadcasters who will will consider, in broad terms at least, conservative, um, but they tended to be an individual person with like one time slot on a major radio network, and that's because at the time. Uh, radio was controlled by the big networks, by CBS, by the precursors, the NBC, and it, it, so it, the mutual broadcasting system. And uh, so a handful of very large networks controlled over 90%, 95% by 1945 of all radio stations in the US. And when you're a big corporate entity like that, you don't want content that's a that's you know beyond the Overton window. That's too radical, and that's true from both left and right. So there was a lot of um, exclusion of both radical left and radical right wing voices. That included like today, conservatism is part of the kind of mainstream. But prior to the 1960s and 70s, it was not. It was considered there, there was a respectable republicanism at the time, and conservatives were not typically considered to be part of that. But same was true. Uh, there were like socialist voices. Uh, there was an attempt to push socialists out of radio station ownership. Uh, they certainly weren't welcome on network radio in the 1930s. And so the radio landscape, there were conservatives on the radio prior to the 1950s and 60s, but they were an isolated voice here and there, generally excluded by network dominated radio. But then in the 1950s, this all started to change quite dramatically and quite quickly uh, because of the rise of television. Had nothing to do with politics per se. It was uh, the big network saw an opportunity for more money. They get more ad revenue from this new uh, this new communications medium from TV, and so they're pouring all their capital reinvestment into expanding their television networks after the war, after the FCC opens opens the door to that, and that leaves radio. Uh, as the preserve of small non-network independent station ownership. 
at the same time, the number of radio stations of licenses approved continues to grow. So you go from about 900 licenses in 1945 to 3,500, as I recall, in 1960. So nearly four times as many radio station licenses, almost none of which go to the old dominant network radio uh, corporations, which means you have all these stations all over the country now blanketing the country that are owned by individual proprietors, you know, like a local businessman might buy one as a, as a speculative investment. And maybe he wants to promote his car sales company or something. Uh, he can't afford to be as picky as CBS, say, when it comes to choosing content, right? He needs people to produce content for him. So there are broadcasters who bring him shows and pay him to air their shows. Um, he can't be as picky as the big corporations. So they, uh, this new kind of independent station ownership opened the door to radicals who had previously been excluded, both on the left and the right. Of course, the folks I'm looking at are the right wing voices. But suddenly, um, otherwise, you know, previously obscure regional people like Carl McIntyre, who's a he's a preacher in New Jersey, a fundamentalist Presbyterian preacher, uh, runs a, a really small denomination, few tens of thousands of, of, of members, you know, not a big national figure. He is able to get his show from one station in the mid 1950s to more than 480 stations by the early 1960s. So he's able to build this like informal syndicated network of, of stations that broadcast his content, turning him from just some local New Jersey preacher into someone with an audience of 20 million weekly listeners, which is comparable uh, for those who are familiar with talk radio today. That's comparable to Rush Limbaugh at the height of his program in the 2000s. Um, and yet this is 40 years earlier, which means that, you know, relative to the national population, he had a Mark, Carl McIntyre had a larger audience than Rush Limbaugh. And just as it would be seem odd if you wrote a political history of the 90s through today that didn't some, about national politics and talking about the role of conservatism in that story, it would feel odd if you left out talk radio and Rush Limbaugh. Uh, it should feel equally odd to write a political history of the 1960s that doesn't mention this new wave, this first mass wave of right-wing broadcasting. It's interesting as well to note the intersection that you talk about with both with uh, right-wing broadcasting and religion, because religious broadcasting wasn't new. In the 20s, you had Billy Sunday, you had A.B. Simple McPherson. What distinguished this group of broadcasters that you talk about, not just McIntyre, but, but some of the others, uh, from them in terms of their engagement with politics? What, what, why was politics more prominent and why are we viewing them as, as, as political actors rather than as purely religious ones? Yeah, very good question. It's So the, the short answer is that, um, again, I think it actually goes back to uh, network control. So the, the people you mentioned, Amy Semple McPherson is a great example. She's deeply political uh, in local California politics. Um, there is no shortage of an interest in being political, but there were constraints imposed by networks on the people who create content for them, on their broadcasters, to avoid anything too controversial. So networks didn't like it. I mean, they would. That's part of the reason why you know Charles Coughlin was kicked off because of his anti-New Deal um, editorializing. The networks didn't appreciate that. Um, so a, a large part of it is that they weren't free. They were kind. Of, there was a chilling effect from network control on radio. Uh, that any but the most kind of mainstream and even anodyne 
uh, political opinions were not welcome at that time period. Now, the one way around that was if you owned a station yourself, and both Amy Semple McPherson and Charles Coughlin and others owned a station, um, uh, you know, uh, Charles Coughlin had, you know, had a big, powerful radio station in the middle of Detroit. So the networks couldn't push them off there. But again, remember, 95% of, the, of radio stations by 1945 are owned by the networks. So it was hard to have the same kind of national scope that was possible with, with structural changes to the industry. In terms of religion, the thing that's happening in the 30s and 40s is that uh, the at the time, at first the Federal Radio Commission and then the Federal Communications Commission, the government regulator that issues broadcasting licenses – they, they had a requirement that license holders should operate in what's called the public interest, convenience, or necessity. And part of that was they wanted license holders to, to talk about religion. And they wanted it to be a kind of, you know, common, lowest common denominator. Uh, you know, it's especially, well, after, after World War II, it's supposed to be, you know, uh, fighting uh, atheistic communism. So we want something that binds all the theists of all kinds together. So, you know, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, they shouldn't attack each other. It should be harmonious, ecumenical. And uh, the FCC required uh, license holders to air a certain con uh, percentage of their content should be religious programming, and it should be given away on a sustaining basis. And what that word sustaining means is that it should be given away for free. So what license holders would do, what radio stations would do, is they would usually on Sunday and then on Saturday for uh, Jewish organizations, they would give a certain number of hours each week for free to local religious groups. Um, it tended to be now that they were okay with that too, because Sunday and Saturday were low volume days. I mean, the, the peak you wanted prime time. I mean, there was prime time in radio, just like there is in television evening hours when everyone's at home on weekdays. That's when people listen to the radio. So, Typically, stations were fine with giving a few hours on a, uh, undesirable slots on a Saturday or Sunday. That sustaining airtime overwhelmingly went to the largest religious organizations. So to the Catholic Church, uh, to some of the larger uh, Jewish denominations, and to the – at the time was called the Federal Council of Churches and was eventually renamed the National Council of Churches, which was the big – Protestant ecumenical parachurch organization that represented some 45 million American Protestants in a bunch of different denominations, the United Methodist Church, the you know PCUSA, and so on and so forth. So they were getting this airtime for free in these undesirable slots. Smaller religious groups uh, didn't have a real shot at getting that sustaining airtime. They might on a local radio station, but they're getting driblets compared to the what the larger organizations are getting. And of course, the larger organizations are also their politics and kind of cultural outlook and theology is less conservative. They tend to be more you know, liberal, mainline, ecumenical. Uh, smaller conservative and fundamentalist uh, groups weren't getting very much of that sustained airtime. So they preferred to buy airtime uh, and not just be limited to Sundays. Uh, so there was always that constant kind of back and forth between the kind of more liberal, both theologically and politically groups that controlled this free airtime and the smaller conservative groups who had to purchase their airtime. So it wasn't exactly a level playing field. But once the, again, once the industry changed in the 50s and 60s, uh, despite that kind of uh, thumb on the scale on the behalf of the larger, uh, more liberal denominations, 
uh, it surprised everyone when it turns out that the more conservative kind of fundamentalist broadcasters who had previously been mostly excluded from the national airwaves, the message that they were they were giving on the air was very popular with the laity. Uh, so much so that it, they were able to buy, you know, they were able to, people were sending them donations. They were buying airtime. They're not getting it for free. And their listeners are sending them donations in the mail, small dollar donations, $5 here, $10 there. They're able to raise millions of dollars to buy airtime. So their message is clearly getting an audience. Um, and it's very alienating for, the, the, in this case, the National Council of Churches, which starts to note that uh, lo- their local clergy report back up the chain of command and say, hey, I-, I-, I only get my listeners once a week. I get to speak to them from the pulpit for, you know, I do a little homily for 15, 20 minutes. They're listening to these right-wing conservative, both religious and, you know, politically commentators five days a week for hours every day. I can't compete. And they're telling they're telling their listeners that the National Council of Churches is infiltrated by communist sympathizers and all these, you know, kind of uh, uh, paranoid tales. But I'm telling my parishioners not to listen to them, but I can't make them not listen to them. What can you do to help me out? So the, the tables have turned pretty drastically from the 30s and 40s to the 50s and 60s in terms of religious radio. And what you're talking about is not just a passive audience in your book. And this is one of the things I, th- I thought was especially interesting about your book is that you talk about the engagement between the broadcasters and their audience. And, and I thought it, nothing demonstrates that better in your book than your description of the Polish ham boycott. I was wondering if you could perhaps I- explain what the Polish uh, ham boycott was for those who aren't quite as familiar with the period and, and how it, it demonstrates this power that or this influence, shall we say, uh, that that uh, these broadcasters now had with that audience that was uh, so troubling to these more mainstream, mainline uh, Protestant ministers. I, I love the Polish ham boycott. This is this was my favorite chapter to write, and it's the one after the intro. We you kick right off with the Polish ham boycott, which is a great term. I mean, Polish ham. I mean, what's Polish ham? So, uh, what's going on here is that in 1962. Uh, Congress had given the president the power to unilaterally, without requiring additional legislation, lower and raise, but in this case, lower tariffs uh, with other countries. So he didn't have to go through congressional approval, you know, sign a special treaty. He could just do it with, with executive power. Uh, ironically, for those who follow politics today, it is the same power that was granted JFK in the 60s that Trump has been using today to raise tariffs on Canadian timber and steel and the like. So it's actually ironically being used for the opposite purpose 50 years later. But at the time, it's given to JFK. And they what they want to do is lower tariffs on uh, imports coming from Eastern Europe. It's behind the Iron Curtain. It's the Eastern Bloc. Some of these countries are, you know, puppet states of the Soviet Union. Some are independent, but still kind of affiliated with the Soviet Union, like Yugoslavia. Uh, So there are these, and the idea of this policy was that by lowering tariffs and encouraging trade with Eastern Europe, it would start to peel them away from Soviet influence. They would start to be more, you know, they would have ties to the US. So if, you know, World War III broke out, Poland would say, hey, our biggest trade partner is actually the US and, or or something. It, it, It was, it was Cold War diplomacy at play. Uh, this idea, though, was not at all popular with um, 
this kind of growing conservative grassroots, the kind of people who listened to right wing radio all day, every day in, in the early 60s. Uh, anti-communism is a big deal at the time. It's 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 hard. It's hard to exaggerate just how motivating anti-communism was. It seems uh, paranoid and hyperbolic from our current perspective. But at the time, it was deeply motivating. And so they they worried that what Kennedy conservatives worried that Kennedy was um, not actually undermining Soviet control of Eastern Europe. He was actually going to uh, he was actually helping prop up their economies and that the profits made from the sales of um, of those goods that were coming from Eastern Europe and the U.S. was buying uh, would be used to, you know, for military supplies uh, for various communist insurgencies around the globe, including at the time in French Indochina or, you know, Vietnam. And uh, it's 1962. So U.S. involvement has been slowly escalating in Vietnam. And you had all these uh, listeners who were hearing about uh, who were hearing conservative broadcasters criticize JFK's trade policy with Eastern Europe and telling them that every time you saw a Polish ham in a supermarket, uh, it meant that those profits were buying bullets for the guns of the Viet Cong in Vietnam that were being shot at their sons in in Vietnam. And so I have these letters from from listeners who write in and say, here's a full page, full color advertisement for Crocus Polish hams. Make your Christmas, you know, merry, extra merry this season. And when they saw those ads, it was, it was, uh, you know, that what a blow, emotional blow that would have felt based on their priors. This idea that this cheery thing was bullets in the gun of the rifle being fired at my son as what, as one mother wrote, uh, uh, a paraphrase wrote into her favorite broadcaster. Um, how alarming that must have been to them. So you have and what, what and what the broadcasters are doing. There was a boycott movement started by a Miami chiropractor. Um, a complete political unknown starts uh, this uh, this uh, boycott movement that expands to over 260 cities in the country. Chapters open up all around the country and uh, people join this boycott and they are disproportionately suburban housewives. Um, is a, it's an expression of what other historians have called housewife populism. The idea is that being a good mother and being a good citizen means looking out for not only one's home, but also their national home. That that that's what being a mother is a home to the nation as well. And so all these conservative suburban middle class women um, who are often disproportionately responsible for consumption, deciding what to buy at the store each week. Uh, they are alarmed by what they're hearing about this boycott from their favorite radio broadcasters. So what radio does is it takes this Miami chiropractor's little protest uh, with an obscure committee to, to, against the boycott or against the import of Eastern European goods and ex and and uh, uh, amplifies it. It's a, it's a loudspeaker. They amplifies this little local broadcast into a national phenomenon. And uh, people jump on board. Uh, you have all these boycott chapters across the country. And what the participants do, uh, not only are they listening to uh, uh, critiques of the Kennedy administration um, on the radio, they are do organizing direct action. So one of the things they do is they organize card parties. Um, and the cards are like little pieces of paper, you know, like a little slip of like a business card size slip of paper. And on the front of it will say something like, uh, always buy your communist products at Supergiant or at, you know, so a department store, a grocery store, 
uh, and they take those cards, they would print off hundreds or thousands of them, members of that local boycott chapter in, say, the suburbs of St. Louis, would all descend on the retailer, like a department store, that is selling those goods, or a grocery store that's selling Polish hams or Yugoslavian wicker baskets or, you know, fill in the blank. And they would take these cards and just spread them all over the store. Uh, and uh, you would, you know, slip them in the the pockets of every, the breast coat pockets of every suit in the store, or slip them in the packaging of toothpaste tubes in the pharmacy uh, section. Um, you just scatter them all over the store. And so when people go to buy those goods, it's like, oh, you know, hammer and sickle on my <laughs> my suit pocket. It's, it's, you know, it's meant to suppress sales and raise awareness uh, where these goods come from. And uh, because they're suburban housewives, that also comes with a certain amount of respectability. And so they're pretty confident the police aren't going to respond to an irate store manager by trying to arrest them all. It looks bad if you take the wives of local upstanding businessmen and, 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 and put them in the slammer. Um, so this kind of direct action uh, um, direct, direct action tactics really does work wonders uh, to the point where Congress starts to feel the heat. Uh, Congress people are receiving mail from their constituents and they realize this is deeply unpopular. Uh, and so they actually pass a resolution um, uh, uh, rebuking President Kennedy for lowering tariffs. Uh, with Eastern Europe and revoking most favored nation trade status with several countries that Kennedy had granted it to. It was mostly a symbolic rebuke. Um, in more practical terms, over 60 of the largest retailers in the country um, uh, respond to the boycott by pulling all the offending goods from their stores. So it was very effective. I mean, it was one of the more effective boycotts um, uh, of mid 20th century American history. Uh and it was this big embarrassment to the Kennedy administration. Um, in fact, so embarrassing that later on, and we'll talk about Kennedy's uh, uh, response to the rise of the radio right. But later on, one of the things that gets specifically cited in internal memoranda in the Kennedy administration for why they need to take extraordinary and really illegal measures to combat the radio right is the card partiers. So a bunch of suburban housewives across the country forced Congress and the presidency to resort to really remarkable measures. Um, and they had that voice, and that, that movement spread because of radio. When, when people joined these boycott chapters, they wrote to their favorite radio broadcasters that they heard about it from, not to the Miami chiropractor and the like. It's so, And I think we're familiar with that today. Like what is, in contemporary terms, the Polish ham boycott is a precursor to the Tea Party. And what is the Tea Party in 21st century America without talk radio and right-wing cable news, right? That's how these movements that engage in political action get their start. They get amplified by, uh, by a, a media, by a, a form of media. It, um, it, so that's, that's why I love this Polish ham story. It's, it's an interesting story in another respect because it, it, I was thinking about what you were saying regarding the respectability of suburban housewives. The Kennedy administration going after suburban housewives is not going to play well politically. So it's like where in this process, what can they target in this process that is vulnerable to without necessarily creating this hugely negative political backlash? And it becomes these broadcasters who are uh, amplifying this message, who are spreading the word, and who are making it from what could be, say, six or seven retailers to 60 or 70, who are, who are uh, in, from the Kennedy uh, administration's perspective, intervening in his effort to, to conduct foreign policy. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, they, you can't really go after the, uh, uh, the, the grassroots itself, but you can go after the kind of inter- intermediaries, the people responsible for spreading right wing news information. Um, that's, that's who they decide to target. Uh, and, and this isn't the only such instance. I love this one because like this, this image of suburban housewives taking on Congress and the executive is, is, uh, you know, a compelling one. Um, but there's other other such instances. I mean, Kennedy in the 1960 election uh, during the primaries, the Democratic primaries, he was not the favorite candidate going into the election. Um, and the key test at the time, anti-Catholicism is still a very live prejudice in American politics. And um, he's worried he's Catholic, of course, and uh, he's worried that that will not play well in overwhelmingly Protestant States that are having democratic primaries, and the first one of which, the first major one, is West Virginia, which has very few Catholics at the time. And um, he's concerned. And one of his local campaign officials says, "Well, if you lose here, it's going to be because of all these backwoods radio preachers stirring up anti-Catholic prejudice." Uh, the most prominent of which was Carl McIntyre had three stations in West Virginia at the time, covering all the major population uh, centers in the state. So what Kennedy did? So again, he has a problem. Uh, he needs to get through this. And, and this is early on. There's not nearly as many right-wing radio broadcasters in 1960 as there are in 62 or 63. Um, he actually works with the National Council of Churches. Um, they have a representative named James Wine. They c- compile a bunch of quotes from prominent National Council of Churches executives saying nice things about JFK. JFK gives a speech where he talks about the importance of separation of church and state and says nice things about the National Council of Churches. And so they kind of create this little alliance. The National Council of Churches sends this list of quotes to all its clergy in West Virginia and encourages them to read these pro-Kennedy quotes from their pulpit uh, in the Sundays leading up to the primary uh, to the primary vote. So very early on, I mean, so the Kennedy administration, it's not 1962, they realize, oh, the radio right exists. It's a thing from the very beginning of the Kennedy uh, campaign and administration they knew was a problem, but that just kind of metastasized. I mean, it grew from uh, McIntyre had about 100 stations in 1960 that he aired over. By 1964, it's 480. So it's exponential growth curve. It's just getting worse and worse. So Kennedy realizes he needs to do something to shut these guys down. So- what exactly does he do and how does he go about implementing it? So uh, what he decides, um, and this was done, it's not just the president himself. He has some allies um, who influence his thinking. In particular, uh, uh, the the Ruther brothers, Walter and Victor Ruther, uh, they were influential uh, leaders in the United Auto Workers. They come out of the labor union movement. They also didn't like the right wing for their own reasons. I mean, the these conservative guys tended to be you know against labor union organization and were for right to work laws and the like. So they had their own reasons. It didn't have anything to do with religion for the Ruthers or at all. Um, they put together so after Kennedy wins in 1960, and he wins by a very slim margin by about 100,000 votes. I mean, it's one of the the narrowest wins until like 2000. When you know Gore v. Bush in 2016, Trump v. Hillary, um, he wins by a very slim margin. So he is he's worried that in 64 he'll lose re-election. I mean, he doesn't know he's gonna be murdered. I mean, that's you know, obviously he doesn't know that. So as they start planning ahead for the 62 midterms and the 64 re-election campaign, 
what can we do to get a, a wider margin than that that slim victory in 60? So he commissioned some of his his allies in the labor union, the, the Ruthers, to put together a list of recommendations for what the administration should do. And what the Ruthers uh, put together is a document that uh, we'll, we'll call, and they nicknamed it at the time, the Ruther Mem- Memorandum. Um, and in this memorandum, they recommended a number of major steps uh, to combat. And in this case, they thought the key to his reelection victory in 64 would be combating the radio right, uh, right-wing broadcasters. And so they recommended a few things, uh, the most, two most important of which for our purposes are uh, using the Internal Revenue Service to do tax audits of right-wing broadcasters uh, with the idea of removing tax exemption for them. And if they're not tax exempt, then that's going to stem the flow of, of funds. People are, are going to donate less if they can't deduct it from their taxes. Uh, so targeted audits of right-wing broadcasters. And then the other uh, major pincer was to use the Federal Communications Commission uh, to enforce something called the Fairness Doctrine, uh, which was a set of regulations meant to encourage station license holders to make sure that when they talked about politics, that they were equitable. That if they had a, you know, if they had a Republican candidate give a speech, they would give the their Democratic candidate a speech. But that in general, not just candidate talks or candidate ads or speeches, this in general, when they talked about the Vietnam War, they talked about whatever the issue may be, they they brought in major points of view from all sides or from at least from both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, uh, they didn't just editorialize in one direction. They weren't. They didn't skew either conservative or liberal. That was the theory. But what the Kennedy, what the Ruthers, and then later the Kennedy administration realized was that this rule, which had not yet really been enforced in any meaningful way, that it could be used for partisan gain. So if you just targeted every time a conservative attacked the administration and demanded response time for the administration or uh, an allied interest group. And you only did that in that case. You didn't do the flip side. You, you know, when uh, unbalanced, you know, liberal points of view were were um, were uh, uh, spoken. You, you didn't demand compensating conservative time. If you only enforced half of it, it was a very effective tool for suppressing conservative broadcasting. So those were the the two biggest recommendations um, for our purposes from the Ruther Memorandum. And then I tell the story in the book about how the Kennedy administration acted on both of those major recommendations in a very effective way, um, leading to what I you know, would call the uh, most successful episode of government censorship in America of the last half century. And what you talk about, though, is not just the Kennedy administration's uh, efforts in uh, with their appointees to the uh, Federal Communications Commission to uh, refine and implement the Fairness Doctrine. We also talk about how the National Council of Churches gets in on this by filing various lawsuits. And so we're now talking about this legal campaign, which is in itself the weapon, not necessarily the, uh, it's not the means to the end, it becomes in effect the uh, end itself. Yeah, yeah. So it, and it kind of, this, this uh, counter radio right campaign, it moves through, couple of stages. And in the book, I think you'll see that there's these um, different folks kind of take the reins at different points in time. So at first, it is very formally the Kennedy administration directly in, uh, involved. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, he uh, 
he is, you know, he's meeting with the uh, with IRS officials, um, encouraging them to do accelerated audits on right wing broadcasters, which is not, you know, not considered couth. Right? <laughs> not supposed to have the attorney general encouraging targeted audits of of political op- opponents. Um, he is uh, Kennedy himself is on Oval Office tape. Uh, there's a very brief conversation where he alludes to the IRS and FCC, uh, you know, pincers of this counter radio right campaign. So he has a direct and immediate hand in in that campaign. There's another point where um, the White House at the White House meeting, they create a front organization called the Citizens Committee for a Test Ban Treaty. Uh, there was a whole debate over whether there should be a nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviet U- Union going on in 1963. And this, so the White House creates a secretly creates a front organization to launder uh, fairness doctrine claims against conservative broadcasters who criticized the treaty on air during the summer and fall of 1963. Um, so th- there's this first stage w- that is very much run out of the out of the Kennedy administration. Then Kennedy's assassinated, uh, and it, the leadership of the counter-radio right campaign passes to the Democratic National Committee. Um, and during the summer of 1964, they hire an operative named Wayne Phillips to use the Fairness Doctrine to um, uh, basically discourage conservative broadcasters, at least the stations who are hosting those conservative broadcasts, from airing attacks on Lyndon Johnson, who's, of course, running in 64, uh, who's taken over after Kennedy has died, and um, and to discourage them from you know, promoting Barry Goldwater. So it's an attempt to suppress uh, Goldwater's chances by targeting conservative broadcasts who are pro-Goldwater and anti-Johnson. And there's a bunch of internal memoranda and uh, between them, uh, and they crow about their success in the aftermath of the 64 landslide where Johnson just, you know, gives uh, Goldwater a drubbing. So that's kind of the second stage. Uh, they also create a front organization called the National Council for Civic Responsibility, uh, financed by the DNC again secretly, um, which uh, they use to give it kind of a, a they put a they put a puppet Republican in charge of the organization. Don't give him any information, uh, and they use it to give this counter radio right campaign a kind of bipartisan uh, facade. Um, so that's the second stage, and then the third stage is after '64, the DNC loses interest. I mean, they now have a, a massive congressional majority for the Democratic Party. Uh, Johnson's one in the landslide. They don't need these kind of illicit uh, methods uh, when they have that much, you know, formal political power. So they they stop direct DNC involvement. But at the same time, uh, all these appointees at the FCC, uh, many of them are members of National Council of Churches congregations. Uh, Kenneth Cox is a member of the is an FCC commissioner. He's a very uh, involved member of the United Church of Christ. And uh, the all throughout the same time period, you know, kind of, if you will, left wing religious broadcasters uh, from the National Council of Churches who are used to receiving this free sustaining airtime are being dwarfed on the airwaves by these, you know, previously fundament, fundamentalist irritants. I mean, just little insects. And now they're being you know, dwarfed by them uh, on the airwaves. And so they, they're looking for throughout this period, the National Council's broadcasting and film commission is looking for an effective means of responding. They're hopeful that the FCC can be that, that means. And so working with sympathetic commissioners 
on the Federal Commu- uh, Communications Commission and with sympathetic um, Senate Democrats on the Commerce Committee, which has oversight over the FCC, uh, by 65 to 67, they that's the third phase of this counter-radio right campaign. Um, so the FCC commissioners and their uh, Senate representatives would would slip information to the uh, National Council of Churches Broadcasting Film Commission, uh, advance warning of new policy changes coming. They would give them, you know, seminars. The FCC would kind of essentially send commissioners and representatives to run seminars for the National Council of Churches and how they could more effectively submit fairness doctrine complaints. And so what the National Council of Churches does is it uses the fairness doctrine to complain about any attacks by these right-wing religious broadcasters on the National Council of Churches. So when Carl McIntyre would say, well, the National Council of Churches is has been infiltrated by communists, they could send, the National Council could respond by sending uh, a letter to the radio stations across the country that aired that attack on the air and demand free response time or threaten to submit a fairness doctrine complaint to the FCC so that next time their station license was up for renewal, uh, the FCC would consider not renewing their license. So they had this like government um, or this uh, a regulatory club that they could use to threaten stations into giving them free response time. Um, the ultimate goal of which was not so much the response time as it was getting stations to rethink whether or not they should, it was worth the bother to take these conservative broadcasters because most of the time, you know, the local station owners, they were politically agnostic. They were not hardcore conservatives or liberals or what have you. They just wanted to try to make money um, and keep these radio stations afloat. But if they had to, every time a conservative attacked uh, the national council of churches, if they had to give free response time to national council of churches and, and file paperwork and potentially hire a lawyer for license renewal hearings just wasn't worth the bother. And so the idea was that they would drop conservative broadcasters altogether. And this combination of pressure, pressure from the National Council of Churches, pressure from the FCC's Fairness Doctrine, pressure from Senate Democrats who uh, launched an investigation, a congressional investigation into what they called the radical right on the radio, um, did lead to wholesale uh, dropping of conservative broadcasting by independent station owners across the country. So that's 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 how the censorship campaign really worked. So it's this combination of all these groups have their own particular interests, um, but they will work with others. So the you know, again, Senate Democrats don't care so much about the religious fortunes of the National Council of Churches. The National Council of Churches, however, cares a great deal about combating this kind of religious upstart insurgent set of insurgents. Um, but they work together, and the net effect of that uh, of that working together is this uh, wave of censorship. So you you have this you know campaign which is very effective. How does that then ultimately? I mean, what's what's the legacy of this? Because it would seem like by by the time you get to like the late nineteen sixties, uh, these uh, these these. Stitched together networks are in decline. Carl McIntyre is facing all these lawsuits. He's eventually broadcasting from a boat offshore. How do we go from that to the resurgence that we see uh, that uh, continues on to the present day? Great question. Yeah. So, um, 
So it does – this censorship campaign explains the decline of conservative broadcasting from the mid-60s until the mid-70s. Uh, and you can just see that in the station counts across uh, all these broadcasters, Billy James Hargis, uh, Carl McIntyre, Clarence Mannion, go down the list. Um, fewer and fewer stations are willing to put up with that legal and political pressure. Um, that changes during the administration of the – great deregulator and no not ronald reagan it's actually um it's 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 actually uh jimmy carter he was the great deregulator uh he deregulates the airlines deregulates the beer production industry and he deregulates uh the airwaves um his fcc commission uh the commissioners he selects all think the fairness doctrine is a tool of censorship and, and you know political suppression so they they drop enforcement so this rule that had been used very successfully as a political cudgel is no longer going to be enforced by 76. Um, it's still on the books. It's actually the Fairness Doctrine is not off the books until 87 during the Reagan administration. It's still kind of technically on the books until the uh, uh, Obama administration. It's on there but not actively enforced, obviously. So Carter stops enforcing it. It is right at that moment that enforcement uh, eases that you see the first stirrings of the new religious right on on radio and television. So it's this moment when Pat Robertson, you know, gets into satellite and cable broadcasting. When Jerry Falwell goes from being just a random uh, Virginia preacher to a host of a very successful national radio and television program. So it that's how you get from there. So you get this this rule that's enforced that suppresses right-wing political and religious uh, broadcasting up until the late 70s. Enforcement is eased. You start to see folks feel more freer and freer to talk about expressly political content on radio and television. And then with the rule being completely removed in, uh, in 86, 87, that's the moment when you have a, a new wave of, you know, these aren't particularly religious people, but your Rush Limbaugh's and the like, they feel free to do overt political editorializing. Um, and that's when you get the second wave of uh, right-wing radio, the talk radio we're familiar with today. And if I could recommend, I mean, I, sh I suppose I should recommend people read my own book first, but then they should uh, go read uh, Brian Rosenwald's book, Talk Radio America, which is about that second wave and uh, very specifically about Rush Limbaugh. And one of the things that uh, Rosenwald talks about in his dissertation, though not in the book, that's very interesting to me, is that it didn't have to turn out this way, which is that talk radio, we just assume talk radio means uh, is, is equivalent to conservatism, that that's uh, dominated by conservatives and that's just the way it is and must be and has always been. That's not true. In the 80s, especially early on, there was a pretty, ba pretty balance, uh, pr pretty much a balance between right-wing and left-wing talk radio, early talk radio hosts. There was actually a lot of demand for left-wing talk radio, but the problem was was that uh, left-wing talk radio had a natural competitor created in the late 1960s and early 1970s called PBS and NPR. So you had national public radio and uh, national you know public television, uh, which you know it tended to be more center-left rather than you know so it was not as far to the left as right-wing talk radio was far to the right, but. Right-wing talk radio didn't have a, a you know a government-subsidized competitor that they had to compete for an audience with. Left-wing talk radio did. So the reason for the right-wing dominance of talk radio from the 80s on is in part because uh, because of that, because of the landscape 
um, and and how it it cut against the rise of a radical left wing talk radio. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure, glad to. Yeah, so um, since I, I work at a think tank now, there's a lot of interest in okay, what th- this history is interesting, but what are the implications for public policy today? So I've been doing some work. I wrote an essay for uh, uh, an edited collection that should come out with uh, Columbia University later this year uh, titled TBD. But it's about – so given this history of partisan abuse of the fairness doctrine, of the public interest standard more broadly, does that have implications not just historically but also for public policy today? And uh, one of the implications is uh, has to do with the internet. So uh, ever since the mid '90s, the internet has been—it's this new media, you know, mass media forum, a new communications technology that since the mid '90s has been essentially unregulated. Uh, there is, has been new interest recently from both you know bipartisan interest in regulating the internet, and one of the mechanisms proposed for doing so is something that looks like public interest regulations. Um, not unlike the fairness doctrine. In fact, there's a Republican senator, Josh Hawley from Missouri, proposed something that functionally was very similar to the fairness doctrine, though instead of trying to ensure fairness, it was going to ensure non-discrimination. So that that, that basically internet platforms would not be allowed to discriminate against content on the basis of the politics being expressed, which sounds good in theory, but you know, most of us actually do want uh, internet platforms to uh, distinguish between political content when that political content is stuff that most of us find unsavory. For example, you know, hateful, you know, uh, uh, most ordinary consumers don't want their Facebook feed filled with pro-Nazi agitprop, right? So, uh, or other kinds of hate speech and the like. So there has been, the point of this though, is there's been an effort to bring back fairness doctrine style regulation and applied to the internet. And my book is some should be considered. This is not the point of the book. I wrote the book before I can, I was not concerned at all about public policy when I wrote it purely in historical mode, but there are implications for, Hey, if these rules were abused for partisan or private gain, we should expect if we pass similar rules in the future and apply them to the internet, we should be suspicious that something similar could be done that we should look for that kind of abuse. Maybe that still means passing those rules anyways, because the upside is greater than the downside. But we should go into this knowing that there are historical precedents that we can look to for a bit of guidance. So that's what I'm working on right now. Um, uh, there's other other projects that will, uh, you know, you know how it is as a historian. You, every, every time you read a book or write a paper, you think of uh, several papers that you could write and you maintain a list, all the stuff you want to get to, but probably never will. Well, I look forward to seeing all that future work that you have uh, that you're working on now. Thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity to come on the show. Oh, it's our pleasure, Paul. I hope you have a wonderful day.